Amen. Thank you, Mary. Our scripture for today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 13. I hope you'll turn there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 13. We are picking up where we left off in our journey through this book, looking at the story of King David. And uh, for today's message, I will be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV, instead of my usual New International Version, the NIV. And I have two reasons for doing that. The first is the precision and consistency of the ESV when it comes to this chapter. It's helpful sometimes for translations to translate the same original word the same way every time. While it's true that words can have different meanings in different contexts, it's helpful for readers of the English Bible to be able to see those consistencies in the text. And, you know, every translation falls somewhere on a spectrum between very literal word-for-word or a freer paraphrase, somewhere in between. And the ESV tends to be closer to the literal word-for-word. So, I think that's important in understanding what God is saying through this scripture. The second reason is that this is a horrifying scripture. It's disgusting. It's appalling. There's no covering that up. There's no putting any window dressing on that to smooth it over. However, the ESV tends to be less explicit here. It's not that the NIV is wrong in how it translates this passage, but the ESV tends to be less explicit, and I think that's important for sensitive ears in our midst. It's a horrifying scripture. And to be very candid with you, I have put it off as long as I can. (laughs) I have dreaded preaching this chapter. I knew it was coming whenever we entered into this series, and I've put it off as long as I can, but here it is, and we believe that all Scripture is breathed by God, inspired by God, and it is useful, it is profitable for us to read. And so we need to read it, and we need to learn from it. But I think as horrifying as it is, It may be just the kind of scripture that we need for horrifying times. And indeed, we are living in the midst of horrifying times. Some of it isn't really about sinfulness. The pandemic, the economic repercussions, the death, the loneliness, the mental health issues, all of that is horrific. It's taking a toll on all of us. But we're also horrified by the animosity and the hatred that is playing out on our television screens. And while you're probably tired of hearing about it, we're horrified, we should be, by what happened on January 6th of this year in our nation's capital. That that symbol of our freedom, of our republic, could be desecrated that way. I don't care who you are or what your political persuasions are, it's disgusting. And we should be outraged. We're living in the midst of horrifying times. 
And so it's fitting, I believe, for us to read a horrifying scripture, to come face to face with what we would rather ignore and look the other way from so that we can learn and so that we are prepared for hope. We are prepared for hope. But we're not prepared for hope until when we read this, we're not just horrified by what we read. We're not just horrified by what someone else does. We're horrified that the same dynamics and the same ingredients are in your heart and in my heart. No, maybe you and I have not prepared this particular meal, so to speak. But the ingredients that led to this sin are present in the cupboard of your heart and mine. So we need to be warned. We can't just shake our head and say, tisk tisk, that's horrible. We need to look inward. There's nothing Christian about reading the Scripture and saying, oh, that's horrible. That's horrific. What is Christian in reading the Scripture is saying, I need to repent as well. And I need to see myself reflected in this Scripture. Because we need to remember this truth and see this. That we are rightfully horrified, rightfully horrified by the sinfulness we see in the world around us. That's good, that's right, that's your God-given conscience speaking when you see sinfulness around you. But it is not until, it is not until we are horrified, until you and I are horrified by the sinfulness within us, so horrified that we repent, that we are led to repent. It is not until then that we will see Jesus as our only hope of salvation. So be horrified, but reflect back and see how you need Jesus too, or else there is no hope for you, there is no hope for me. Let's read together, beginning at verse 1. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. After a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister, Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Here's what's going on in the larger context. Two points. Number one, God is showing that his word is true. His prophetic word is true. You'll recall just prior to this, King David, God's chosen king over Israel, a man after God's own heart, 
had also been led astray by a beautiful woman. And even though he knew full well that she was pre-committed, he chose to indulge his desire. And God, through his prophet Nathan, had said this to David in chapter 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God's word to David is being fulfilled. God's penalty, the consequences of what David had sown, are coming to fruition. That's one point. The second point is that we see how the sins of one generation are imprinted upon the next generation. Like father, like son, in other words. David's eldest son, Amnon, who stood to inherit the throne of Israel, is now tempted by his half-sister, the sister of another one of David's sons, Absalom. And we can't help but hear echoes of what happened to David in chapter 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from a roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David inquired about her and learned that she was married. The same thing is happening here. Amnon knows that she is off limits. She is off limits. He's not married to her, first of all. Second of all, she is his half-sister, which is explicitly forbidden in God's law. See, Leviticus 18, and that includes half-sisters. But she's beautiful. The same thing David saw. Like father, like son. And what we need to remember from this is the horrifying power of sin to twist. Be horrified at the power of sin to twist what is good, what is right, what is holy. To twist it, to pervert it. And look at this. What should have been natural affection for his half-sister is now twisted into lust. What is good and right, sexual desire that God gave to us to bond a husband and a wife together is now twisted and being directed toward lust. It's appalling. It's disgusting. And what is more, it says that it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her, meaning she was virtuous. He had no opportunity to carry out his sinful designs. But he wasn't going to let that stop him. And notice it says he loved her. 
we could put quotation marks around that word. He loved her. Because as we'll see, this is not love. This is pure lust. But it's being twisted. It's being distorted. Something many a teenage boy has fallen for, I might add. This is not love. He thinks it is. He thinks it is. But in fact, it's just lust. We need to be appalled by this. We need to be horrified by this. Because that same twisting power is in you and in me. And while this may not be your temptation, our enemy Satan has all different ways of getting at us. All different ways. And and I'll give you just to cite one example of many horrifying things on January 6th of this year. So many horrifying things. Any loss of human life is tragic. But those rioters, so many of them, were driven by falsehoods and conspiracy theories to think the vice president of the United States was somehow derelict in his duty. And to think that somehow they could make the situation right by constructing a gallows, a literal gallows, and saying, where is the vice president? So that they could hang him. That's, that's horrific in and of itself. Any American should be appalled by that. But I've got to go further. As Christians... We should be particularly appalled that so many of those rioters were using Christian symbols and Christian words to do what they did, carrying crosses, wearing shirts and carrying signs saying, Jesus saves, God bless America. If that's not horrific to you, I don't know what is. But you see the power to twist. It's true. Jesus saves. It's good and right to say, God bless America. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But you see how sin can twist that and distort that and turn it into something ugly. And here's something very important you need to remember about sin. Is that The greater the good, the more heinous the distortion it can make of it. That was nothing less than an attack upon our faith. And the reality is, this has been pointed out, those writers, they didn't really want Jesus Christ crucified and risen. They wanted a mascot. And I I challenge you to ask yourself, because it's so easy to fall into this, to what extent is the Christian faith and the Lord Jesus a performance 
something to use, something to get something from? To what extent is Jesus your mascot? And you want to invoke his name everywhere. You want to wear his t-shirt, but you don't want him to actually be Lord of your life. It's so easy to fall into this trap. Beware of sin's power to twist even the best things. Sin has the power to twist a sermon, to, to twist the scriptures and our understanding of the scriptures. We can't afford to not be vigilant. It wrecked havoc on David and on David's house. But it gets worse. Verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Pausing there. So let's see here the power of sin to indulge. To indulge. Indulge our worst. And we see that in two cases. First is Jonadab, and then we see it in David. Jonadab, who is a cousin of Amnon, and who's described as a very crafty man. He's, he's a wise man. And again, we could put wisdom in quotation marks because his wisdom is intelligence, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's worldly, and we might even say satanic. He says, what's wrong, my friend? What's wrong? Why do you look sick all the time? And notice how Amnon knows exactly what he's doing. I love Tamar, and he knows exactly why she is off limits. My brother Absalom's sister. And yet even that, he can even utter the words to say why she's off limits. But that doesn't stop him from carrying out his plot. So Jonah has a, a scheme. Here. Do this. Go pretend to be sick and tell the king, tell David, your father, to send for her. And then you'll have her right where you want her. Now, it's not clear that Jonadab fully intends for Amnon to do what he suggests, but he still sets him up. And then look at David. David plays right along. He's completely naive. Sure, couldn't be anything wrong with that. And we see how David falls into the same trap of so many of his predecessors in 1 Samuel. You see this in Eli, great man of God, Eli. And his sons are completely corrupt. You look at Samuel. The reason that Israel wanted a king is because Samuel's sons were so corrupt. And they said, none of these people can be our king. And look at David. Like father, like son. 
It's happening in his own house. He's naive. And he simply indulge his, indulges his firstborn son. Sure, sure, there couldn't be anything wrong with what you're suggesting. Go for it. Go for it. It's bad advice on both counts. What Jonadab should have said to Amnon is what we find in Proverbs 5, verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. That's what a friend would have said to Amnon in this moment. And it's very important in your life. Here's a very practical application. Our human tendency is to hear what we want to hear. Our tendency is to look for confirmation to believe what we want to believe. And what you need, what I need, you need someone in your life, you need people in your life who are going to tell you the truth whether you want to hear it or not who aren't going to indulge what is not in your best interest, who are going to hold you to account and speak truth into your life. Beware of this confirmation bias that we all have. Beware of wanting to hear what you want to hear. Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes we need someone to say, stop, no, That's off limits. That's not good for you. That's contrary to God's designs and plans for you and your life. Look away. But neither Jonadab nor David is capable of uttering those words. And so it gets worse. Verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Notice here and be horrified at the power of sin to dull. The power of sin to dull. Amnon makes a fool out of himself. And not just because of what he does, but because of the disposition of his heart, of his life. He won't listen. Those are the key words. He would not listen to her. She gives him all 
kinds of reasons. She keeps stacking reason after reason after reason why this is wrong. But he would not listen. Don't do such a thing. It's wrong in Israel. This is against God's law. Don't do it because think of the shame you will bring on me. Don't do it because of the shame you will bring on you. And we don't know if this is a real possibility or not, but she says, ask the king, ask David, and he'll give me to you. And maybe that's just a desperate plea, or maybe David is so compromised at this point that he wouldn't have seen what was wrong with that either. We don't know. But either way, he would not listen because his heart was dulled, his eyes were dulled, his ears were dulled, his life was dulled, and sin can do the same thing in your heart and in your life. So beware. Yes, be horrified by this. Be appalled. Be disgusted. Shake your head. Avoid this. But don't think for one second that the same ingredients that dulled Amnon's heart aren't present in your heart. You say, I would never do something like that. Maybe this isn't your temptation, but beware. Beware. Your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we must resist him by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll note one small detail here. In verse 14, says, he violated her and lay with her. Well, with is not in the Hebrew Scriptures. There is no with about what happens here. Picking up again at verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head. It went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Amnon continues to make a fool out of himself. And when the Bible uses the word fool, it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with a failure to listen to advice. Good, sound, godly advice. That is the fool. And you will see that throughout the book of Proverbs. Those who refuse to listen to good advice, those who refuse to hear what God says are fools. And so Amnon is a fool. And 
Remember, we should be horrified at the power of sin to multiply devastation. To multiply devastation. At the beginning of this chapter, it's simply a lustful thought, a disgusting lustful thought, mind you, but it's a thought. And now, look at how it grows and it grows. And now, Amnon hates her because she represents his shame. He's disgusted. Look at how he dehumanizes her. If you look at verse 17, he says, put this woman out. Well, literally, he just says, put this out. It doesn't even say woman. It just says, put this out. Get her away. She's not even a human being to him anymore. Which shows there was no love here. This was mere lust. Now she is ashamed in this day and time. Now this, this long robe with sleeves, which could also be translated coat of many colors, like Joseph. Now the symbol of her status as a daughter of the king is torn. She puts ashes on her head. And then Absalom tells her, now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. What he means is not, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. What he means is I'm going to take care of this for you. I'm going to take care of this for you. And when he says this is your brother, he means, it's going to be difficult to handle this any other way, but I will take care of it. And then we see King David, outraged, furious, angry. But does he do anything about it? No. In fact, in the Greek translation here, there's a note that's added, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. We see further David's indulgence, his failure to act. Oh, he's horrified, all right. He's angry. This is terrible. But does it make any difference in how he lives his life? No. No, because he's compromised. He's compromised because he's guilty of a heinous sin just like his son. What is he going to say? Notice how the devastation is multiplied over and over and over again for every single person involved. And those implications are going to spread to all of Israel. It's going to get ugly, ugly. All because this sin was cultivated and nurtured in Amnon's heart and no one told him, stop. This is what happens when human beings, creatures created in the image of God, defy God's purposes and God's laws. When that happens, you can expect devastation to ensue. So, again, instead of saying, tsk, tsk, that's terrible. I don't ever want to read this in the Bible again. I don't want to hear any more about it. Think about where you are in Jesus' parable that he told in Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You want hope? Hope in the midst of horrific times? Then be horrified by your own sinfulness and your own heart. Don't just look around you and shake your head. There's nothing Christian about that. Look inside yourself and see what is lurking there. And you haven't really done that until you are led to repent. To hate your sin as God hates sin. And it is only then that you're positioned to say, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I can't take any credit. I'm not righteous apart from anything that you have done for me. There is hope in this Savior. There is hope in this Savior. Now some of you may be horrified with something inside of you. Maybe you have regret about things you've said, things you've done. Well, I begin by telling you that God's prophecies are true. His word is true. And God did send a Redeemer from the house of David. As impossible as it might seem when the heir of the throne is someone like Amnon, how is God going to redeem his people now? What in the world? Where is this eternal kingdom, this eternal throne that he promised? Hear these words from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you can't find yourself in there somewhere, then you need to take a closer look. And you need to hear the gospel. Such were some of you. Such was I. But I was washed. You can be washed in the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The name Jesus Christ. All by the power of the Spirit of God coming to live in your heart to change you from the inside out. That can happen in your heart and your life right now. If. You're horrified enough at your sinfulness to repent. Before we look out there, before we cast a stone, we look inside. Amen? We look inside and we repent and we ask for God to breathe on us His Holy Spirit who can sanctify us and save us. I pray that you would do that today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Dear Lord, as horrifying as this text is, we still thank you for your inspired word. A word that can prick our hearts, can prick our consciences, can wake us up out of our spiritual slumber, can show us the danger of sin lurking inside of us. God, we confess that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves to resist, to withstand the assaults of the enemy. And so we run to you, our refuge and our strength. We ask that your spirit would be poured out on your people, one by one, to strengthen us, to protect us, and to equip us to be your people. To not only resist the assaults of the enemy, but to speak truth into this world. To engage in nothing less than spiritual warfare. Knowing that our weapons are not of this world and our enemies are not of this world. But we cannot afford to let our guard down. We must be vigilant. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us to be vigilant by the power of your Holy Spirit because we know there is nothing, there is no power, there is no one who can do for us what the blood of Jesus has done for us in cleansing us and redeeming us. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Closing hymn this morning is Breathe On Me, Breath of God. I invite us all to stand and sing together.